what do you do when you want to display something? When you want to show something off? It might be when you're, when you're trying to sell something. Usually we try to make it look as good as possible, don't we? Even though it, we know it might not be as good as it looks. But we try to make it look good. When uh, fashion designers want to display a, a new line of, of clothing, they put those clothes on beautiful models who will either have their picture taken with them for some sort of a magazine or, or a paper, or they'll walk down a runway at a fashion show. Lots of times when people want to display their product in order to sell it, they'll use someone famous to pitch their product. A movie star, many times an athlete. But what about when the God of the universe wants to display something about himself? Perhaps a, a quality he wants people or, or even his angels or even the bad angels to know about. Who do you think he would use to model that particular quality? Well, what if I told you that he uses a, a ragtag group of people? People that come from all sorts of places, people that come from all sorts of backgrounds, as we sung this morning, they're orphans, outcasts. What if I told you that he uses people that instead of looking perfect like models and athletes, have all sorts of imperfections and, and defects? But people, when they're combined together, have been made holy, have been made set apart. What if I told you that when God wants to display one of his perfections, he uses a strange conglomeration of people? Well, that's exactly what God does. And we'll see that this morning as we look at this passage in the book of Ephesians. Today we jump over to chapter 3 of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. If I could get you to remember two things, just two things about Ephesians, it's that number one, Paul reminds us over and over again who God is and what God has done. These first three chapters especially are all about God's actions. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us. He predestined us for adoption. He lavished grace on us. He called us. He made us alive. He saved us by grace. He created us for good works. He reconciled us to himself. These chapters are all about God's grace, God's actions in saving a people unto himself. Paul means for us in these chapters to see God in all of his, all of his glory. And proceeding from these actions of God is a second thing. God's glory is revealed most prominently through the church. It's all about God, and God is all about the church. Church is not just some sort of a, a, a byproduct, some sort of an extra benefit to the Christian life. The church is at the very core, the very center of God's plan of salvation. The church is an indispensable and, and essential aspect of why God has done what he has done throughout history. We'll start to see that as we get further and further into this letter. And we'll see it this morning as we look at the beginning of chapter 3. So you've got your Bibles open. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 13 of Ephesians 3. You can follow along as I read. 
and I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. I'm trying a little bit of an experiment here. Usually, Pastor Wayne and I both use the New American Standard Bible, but come to really enjoy the English Standard Version. And so this is out of that version. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This section that I just read is a, is a bit of an aside in Paul's thoughts. And you can see that if you read verse 1 and skip verses 2 to 13 and then read verse 14. It'll sound something like this. For, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, for this reason, verse 14 now, I bow my knees before the Father. He's really about to pray for these people. But what he wrote at the start there just kind of turned his thoughts and made him think of something else that he wants to say. It was when he wrote, I, Paul, a prisoner. Immediately that kind of triggered a thought in his mind. He's thinking, what if me being a prisoner discourages the people that I'm writing to, discourages the church? Look down at verse 13. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart or not to be discouraged over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. And so in this little digression here from verses 2 to 13, Paul goes on to tell them why his being a prisoner should not make them lose heart. In some ways, these people would have every reason to get discouraged at that because Paul was really the man. He was the one that God used to preach the gospel to these people. That's how they came into the church, through what Paul told them, through what Paul proclaimed to them. These people became believers because God used Paul to tell them the gospel. And so Paul takes up some space in his letter here to encourage him that being a prisoner is really all part of God's plan. Don't get discouraged. In fact, he says, my being in prison should do the exact opposite. Be encouraged that God's plan is right on schedule. This is exactly the way the sovereign God planned it. I'm in prison, yes, but it's all good. No need to worry. Don't lose heart. And so in some ways, this section is, is very personal. Paul wants to show them that his conversion and his commission and his 
a particular commission from God. Even his imprisonment are all part of God's plan, all part of God's master plan for his church, for how the gospel would get out, not just to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. It's all part of God's desire to have his grace and his character put on display through the church. That's what this is all about. That's what God is asking each of us as Christians, and that's why God takes each of us and and puts us into this one body called the church. That's what it's all about. All of this has one end. It's to show off God's perfections, to show off God's grace, it's to show off God's wisdom. We already saw that back in chapter 2, verse 7. It says that God took us, described as dead people in our sins, and he made us alive. But why did he do that? It says in verse 7 there, so that, that's purpose words, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God did all that, brought us from death to life to show off his grace. And here we have the same sort of purpose statement again, chapter 3, verse 10. God has done all this stuff with Paul that we're going to talk about in just a minute for a reason. Look at it there. Verse 10, so that, there's those same words again, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, might be shown, might be displayed. It's basically the same thing. It's to show off God's greatness. He saves individual people to display his grace. He creates the church to show off his manifold, many-colored wisdom. You see, God wants to be glorified. That, that should be the overarching goal for all of us that are believers. And for the most part, I think, I think we kind of get that part of it. We say it all the time, I, I just want to glorify God. But God's glory should also be the goal for us as we exist in the church. We want to glorify God, not just I want to glorify God. We together want to glorify God. That's something I, I sometimes wonder if we really comprehend, if we really understand. But that's what this section is all about. That's the big goal here. Paul is about to explain how God used every part of his life, even his suffering in prison, even the mission that he was given for the ultimate goal of displaying, of advertising his manifold wisdom. And God is doing that through the church. So since that's the desired outcome here, the next question to ask is how is that going to happen? How does Paul see that that's going to take place? How does God want that to happen is his wisdom to be to be displayed how can we in the way we function as the church possibly display God's manifold wisdom well Paul is going to tell us two main ways that that happens and he'll tell us mainly by through his own example now we can't totally be like Paul Paul has obviously is obviously a very unique person in God's unfolding purposes for the world. He makes that exact point here in these verses. But in making that point, Paul also talks about these two ways that the church should display God's manifold wisdom. The first way is by revelation. Revelation. We are those who get to reveal something about God's plan. 
What a privilege. When we read this passage, you probably noticed that the word mystery popped up a few times. It shows up four times in this section. What is this mystery that Paul is talking about? Well, in the Bible and in that culture, the word is used just a little bit different than the way we use it today. When we talk about a mystery, we think of, of something that's largely unexplainable. Like when, you know, when someone goes missing, you kind of hear a report on the, on the radio or on television that goes like this. It says, so-and-so's disappearance has been described as mysterious. Just, it can't be explained. It's, it's puzzling. There's something strange about it that we, that we don't know. Or I know some of you children use the word mystery. You like reading mystery novels. You know, for girls, it's Nancy Drew, right? If you're older, it's Agatha Christie or all sorts of other things. And the, and the boys read Hardy Boys. These are all sort of these mysteries that, that need to be solved. You know, even there's even Christian ones, right? I used to read... Uh, uh, Sugar Creek Gang, which my son reads now, and, and, and Danny Orlis ones. Some of you might be familiar with those. But there are all sort of these mysteries. But in the New Testament, a mystery was really just a secret. It was something hidden, and in the New Testament, it was something hidden that was made known. During the time this was written, there were religions called mystery religions, where you had to rise up to a certain level in order to, to get in on some secrets. You even have the same thing today, right, with, with a Masonic Lodge. The higher level you achieve, the, the more you find out. The lower you are in the totem pole, the less you know. But God, and, and, and you know, even you think about some cults have the same sort of thing. There's not everything they're going to tell you about that particular cult. If that's the case, your red flags should go up for you. But when Paul uses this word, people might have thought about these mystery cults where secrets stayed hidden, except to a few of the initiated. But Paul totally changes the meaning here. Look at the way Paul uses it. Verse 3, it says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. It wasn't hidden. Verse 4, The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but now has been revealed. It goes beyond to just Paul. Paul he, he, God uses Paul to reveal it to everyone. Verse 9, he says, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Every time Paul uses the word, it's something that was once hidden, but now has been opened up through him for everyone to see. There are no secret societies in the church or in Christianity. It was a secret, in a sense, but not anymore. So what is this mystery that has now been revealed? Well, Paul doesn't leave us mystified. The answer is right there in verse 6. The mystery is, here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's really driving home the same point that he did in, in chapter 2. The Gentiles, these nations, together with the Jews, have total access to the promises of God. There's no difference. Everyone gets at those promises the exact same way, namely in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Before, only the Jews had access to these promises by virtue of them being Jewish. But now both have access, the Jews and all the nations, only through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we become Christians, God amazingly puts us all together in his church. Fellow heirs, 
fellow members of the same body, fellow partners in the promise, co-heirs with Jesus, as we sang this morning. Even though we're all different, in Christ, we're the same. Galatians 3 says there's no Jew, no Greek, no male nor female, nor slave nor free, no, I could add some others, no black nor white, no young nor old. We're all one in Christ. An amazing truth. Well, what makes this a mystery? It was a secret because before Paul, this wasn't clear. It was, it was hinted at, but it was still kind of fuzzy. Like I said last time, believing Jews might have thought that other nations could have access to these promises, but they thought the only way for them to do that was that for them to become Jewish, to obey the laws, to make sacrifices, you know, to eat only certain things. So when Paul comes around and says, no, you get access to God's promises a different way. It's through faith in Christ, faith in Jesus. This is, this is radical for the Jews. In fact, if you go back and read Acts 21 and 22, this is the exact thing that got the Jews all fired up and eventually got Paul arrested in the first place. They didn't make too much of a fuss over Paul saying that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. But as soon as he preached that Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to be in fellowship with God, well, the fight was on. So this was a radical, new revelation. Sometimes we don't get the import of that uh, 2,000 years later. But this is the mystery of Christ. This is the wisdom of God. In Christ, all the nations, that's what Gentiles means, the nations. All the nations come together. They fellowship together. They partner together as one body in the church. The God who created all things there, it says in verse 9, has brought us together in the church. Now if you look at the entire big picture, back in the garden, we know that right after creation, everything was perfect. There was perfect harmony between God and man, between man and woman, between uh, humanity and the land. But after man sinned, everything fell apart. Sin came because Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God. And they disobeyed God's word. They didn't trust him. They disobeyed his command. And that one act is played out over and over again every day in every one of our lives. And that selfishly motivated disobedience brings devastating results. There's disharmony where before there was harmony at every level. But then... In the church, all is brought back together yet, again. Not yet perfectly, but we can start to display God's wisdom as we function together with the harmony that's possible only because we're forgiven by Christ. And then we're united together through faith in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Well, Paul was the initial recipient of the revelation of that mystery. He, he was made a steward of the mystery. Verse 2. And as a steward of God's mystery, his goal, his task, was to make it known. And because God made it known to Paul, Paul made it known to the Ephesians. And because Paul made it known to the Ephesians, it's now made known to the whole Roman Empire. And now it's been revealed to you and to me here in Wetaskiwin in 2010. And we, as we who are believers, different people, different backgrounds, yet one faith. As we fellowship together, as we sit together, as we sing together, as we 
learn together, as we serve together in this new society, as we do all those things, we display the wisdom of God to a world that's full of division and breakup and turf wars, bullying, strife, conflict. Because God has reconciled us through the gospel, we now function together as fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. And when we do that, we actually get to reveal, get to display the manifold wisdom of God. Well, the other way the church shows off the manifold wisdom of God is through proclamation. There's an order there, revelation, then proclamation. You can see that from verse 7 to 13. Let me just read verse 7 to 9 again. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. The mystery was revealed to Paul so that he would proclaim it. And it's like that for us too. Once the gospel is revealed to us, we are now stewards of that gospel. We're responsible. We have a stewardship, a trust that's been given to us. We're called to do something with it. We're to declare it, to proclaim it. That's always the order. The gospel is a treasure with which we've been entrusted. It's not a treasure that we keep hidden away in a safe somewhere. It's not a treasure that we just hoard for ourselves. It's a treasure to be shared. It's a treasure to be shouted from our rooftops. The gospel is revealed to us in order to be proclaimed by us. Let's see what Paul did with this mystery, with this gospel. First thing we can say is that Paul recognized the huge privilege he was given from God of making this mystery known. He was amazed that God would want him to be the one that would be the ambassador of God's message. He could never get over the fact that God would entrust him with that task. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. And it says the same thing twice. Gift of God's grace given me. It was all from God. It was all because of God's grace that Paul was chosen to do this. He uses those same words back in verse 2. It was a stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And look how he sees himself there in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul actually makes up a word in the Greek there that we translate as very least. Sort of a grammatically incorrect translation would be the leaster. He saw himself as leaster than the least, lesser than the least. Paul was entranced by God's grace. He couldn't believe that God would actually use him. We need to remember that this same Paul that God was now using to bring the Gentiles in the kingdom was at one time Saul who went around looking for Gentile Christians to get rid of. And he was going to do exactly that when God all of a sudden appeared in the light, Christ appeared in the light and totally put the brakes on that mission on the road to Damascus. One minute, you know, he was out there decreasing the Christian population and the very next minute, he was sent to expand the Christian population. 
God chose this very least of all the saints, this servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace to preach to the Gentiles. For those of you who might be in this room thinking, God, God would never use me for his purposes. I've, gone, I've just gone too far down the road in my sin. It's too late for me. Then you just need to look at this man and be encouraged. In God's wisdom, he chose this man, this self-described blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, as he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1, and he turned him into a servant of God. And if God can use a man like Paul to be a minister to the Gentiles, he can certainly use you. might not be as a preacher, but it's just in any um, gift, any ability that he might give you for his church. I often sit back and think how amazing it is that God would even use someone like me. But if God is like that, but, and, and we can put our confidence in the fact that God does those sort of things, his grace and his kindness can change your eternal fate by rescuing you. And he can totally redirect 180 degree reversal the course of your life. And so in some ways, if you have that sort of attitude this morning, You've come here and saying it's too late for me. I just want to tell you that that's probably a good thing. It's good that you see yourself as unusable by God in this church because it's when you see yourself that way, when you see yourself as sinful, when you see yourself as deserving condemnation, you'll also see that you, you need help. And right at that moment, God will show you that he has provided that help in the person of his son. If you're humble and you do that, God will show you the way of salvation. Repent of your sin and turn to his son, trusting in his accomplishments for you on the cross. Some of you here today might be like Saul before he became Paul. You might be proud of your own accomplishments. You're you're relying on those. You might even take pride in your religious accomplishments. You've you've tried to follow God's laws and, and you think you've done pretty well. And you're kind of looking over the entries of the, of the ledger of your life and you see lots of merit. Lots of things that you think God should look kindly upon. You're in. You're okay. But listen, friend, what, you are finally re- what are you finally relying upon? Are you relying upon your own accomplishments? Because if you are, that's exactly what Paul was like, was like when he was Saul. You really need to put yourself up against God's laws. Ask yourself, have you ever even once, could be anything, made some money dishonestly, defrauded someone? If you did that even once, the Bible says that you have broken God's laws. You've stolen and you have lied. Now put your whole life up against God's law. As you do that, let your conscience guide you and do an audit on your law-keeping. Look at what happened when Paul did that. Philippians 3 says, If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has confidence in his own self-judged righteousness, I have more. And then Paul goes down and lists his accomplishments. Nobody could beat those. But after all that, what he finds is that the righteousness of my own that comes from the law is useless. What he really needs is that righteousness which comes from faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Paul honestly looked at the entries on his ledger, 
he saw only debt. He saw no merit. You see, your own accomplishments won't cut it. Because even though they might look good on, on the outside, they might even look good when you come to church on Sundays, when you really do an internal audit, those motives, those acts are mixed with sen- sinful, self-seeking desires and motives. You need to bank instead on Christ's perfect accomplishments. Die to your own. God sent Christ in flesh just like yours, just like ours. And then Jesus lived the perfect life that God required of you. And then he died on the cross and he nailed your debt to that cross. And then God raised Christ from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was acceptable as a, as a payment for God's wrath against your sin. So you need to repent of your sins then and put your total reliance on Christ. Don't rely on your own good works. It's like filthy rags. That's what Isaiah says. And then if you do, when you do come to Christ, God recreates us for good works. If you're already serving God in any way, this is a word for you to keep being amazed at God's grace and calling you to himself and into the service of this church. Never lose sight of the fact that you're a servant of God and that you constantly depend on God's grace being infused to you to, to, to keep serving him. We can so easily drift into serving on our own strength or even glorying in our own accomplishments. But don't lose sight of God's grace and God's power in bringing you to himself and don't lose sight of who it is that you serve. Keep seeing your ministry to the church as flowing from God's grace and then pointing to God's grace. Paul's task is twofold there. He says his task is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8 and then to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things there in verse 9. And that now becomes our task as a church. As those who have now heard the gospel As those who have been entrusted with the gospel, our task is to proclaim the unsearchable, the unfathomable riches of Christ. To pray that God might even use us as his ambassadors to help other people see what was previously hidden. Revelation, then proclamation. And we want to be faithful to that task because it makes the manifold wisdom of God known. It all points to what God did through us and through the church. But notice finally that the context that God wants us to display this wisdom is then through the church. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. All of these things that Paul was appointed by God to do were were for the church. Everything points to this display of the wisdom of God. And God designs that his wisdom is best displayed through us as we are together. That's what this is saying. The church, if you add verse 11, is central to the purposes of God. And the church is the means God uses to display his wisdom in the grand plan of salvation. To display his wisdom in sending his son. To display the benefits of salvation through his son. To display his grace. To display the rich variety in which God's wisdom comes to expression in the church. So the church becomes then the the theater. You guys are all on the stage of God's wisdom. As the church functions according to God's design, the church becomes, the church is the model that's walking down that runway to display 
God's wisdom. 2,000 years of church history is the theater of God's wisdom. And notice how big this is. This isn't just a being a light to the community thing, even though that's obviously important. But Paul is imagining something much grander. Notice who the audience is here. Notice in verse 10 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's talking about the angels. It seems like not only did God keep his plan hidden for a time to the Old Testament saints, he also kept the mystery of the church hidden from the angels. But the church now gets to display God's wisdom for the angels. And 1 Peter 1 says that the angels long to look at this salvation. They long to look at what God is doing through the church. They are amazed at what God has done in putting all of us together in the church, and they're praising God for it. When it comes right down to it, Christianity is way, just, way more than just me and Jesus. It's a lot of us think. Your Christian life is to be lived out in the context of the church, and the church then displays the manifold wisdom of God to the angels. And so the importance of this for us, for us is that the church, formed and purchased by Jesus Christ, is central to God's plan. The church displays God's wisdom. Now, I'm not sure what you think about the church. I'm not sure what you think about your place in the church. But listen, friends, we dare not sell it short. We dare not treat it as an optional part of our Christian life. That means that you need to esteem the church. It means that you need to serve in the church. It means that you ought to commit to the church. It means that you ought to submit to the church. And the best there's lots of ways to do that, but the best ways I know how to do that is by being baptized, which is a church ordinance, and then by formally becoming a member in the church. We have a baptism coming up, as Pastor said, on June 13th, and so for those of you that have received Christ but have not yet been baptized, you need to do that. God tells us to do that. Pastor Wayne will talk a little bit more about that next Sunday. But I want to encourage you today towards membership. Many of you have attended this church for a while but have not become members. I'm not sure of your reasons for that. Some of you might have very good reasons. and If so, I'd like to hear those reasons. But I really think that some of you might not know that there's even such a thing as being a member of a church. You're, you're innocent because of lack of knowledge. If you have questions about that, please come and talk to me. And we also have some packets, I think, as you leave the door that will explain that a little bit more. But church membership is the best way I know how to put, your, to put your hand in the huddle and say, I'm right here with you guys. I want to take the next step and I want to take it with you. I promise to stay with you guys through thick and thin. I want to commit to this church. I want to submit myself even to the discipline of this church, to my own holiness. If the church is indeed central to history, if the church is indeed central to the gospel, if the church is indeed central to Christian living, if the church is indeed the display of the wisdom of God, then I encourage you to dive in. Don't be content to stay on the periphery. Dive in with both feet. Be part of this display of God's wisdom. Walk that runway. Will you get hurt? Probably. Will there be a cost to you? Very likely. Will there be suffering? Definitely. But is it worth it? 
Yes. A thousand times yes. The church is God's grand goal. The church is why Christ died. The church is God's eternal purpose. And the church is who Jesus will one day come back for. Would God choose this church to display his manifold wisdom? Would God church, you, you, uh, choose to use Wetaskiwin Mission Church to display his manifold wisdom? I pray it may be so for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for placing believers together in the church. Lord, we are amazed at how you have done that. We are amazed at, at your wisdom. And we thank you that we together have the privilege of displaying that wisdom. Lord, help us to recognize the eternal value, the, the centrality of the church in your great plan, in your great purposes. Lord, help us to see again the, the steep sacrifice you made for the church fact that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. And as your blood-bought people, our desire is to praise you, and to glorify you, and to honor you. I pray that that would be our desire until Christ returns for his bride. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.